We thank the Lord for bringing us back together again this morning. What a, what a text we have in front of us today. Be opening with me in your Bibles to John chapter 10. We'll pick up at verse 7. And Lord willing, we'll make our way all the way down to verse, <clears throat> to verse 21 this morning. Now, we had a picture painted for us last week by our Lord. Do you remember that? In the first five verses, we saw there a picture of the sheep of several flocks who had been penned together and of a shepherd who had come with the right to call his sheep. It was a picture of that shepherd, but it was also a picture of a, of a group of sheep who knew that shepherd's voice so that when he calls, they come to him. And we noticed last week in looking at that picture that Jesus is making distinctions on a couple of different fronts at the same time. One thing we saw is a distinction between himself as the true and rightful shepherd and the Pharisees who demonstrate that they are not legitimate shepherds by the fact that they don't get at the sheep through the legitimate path, through the door. They jump the fence to get at the sheep. That's one distinction that he has made, is this between himself and the Pharisees. But there's another that's going on at the same time in that first picture. It's a distinction between the Pharisees and their response to his voice and his disciples' response to his voice. He's still fleshing those things out as we come to our text this morning. And he needs to do that because verse 6 said that his hearers did not understand what he was saying to them. So he puts it to them again, but he puts it in a couple of different pictures. And as he fleshes out his points, he really clarifies his relationship to some of the details of that first picture. We're going to hear him say this morning, I am the door. And we're going to hear him say, I am the good shepherd. That's how we'll approach the text this morning. And as we walk through it, we see our Lord describe in great detail an answer to the question, how? How exactly will he bring rescue and rest to his people? And so as we walk through John, we're just continuing to get a more and more clear presentation from the light of the world come to bring light to people living in darkness, the shepherd coming to those living without a shepherd. We're getting that picture clarified for us, and in particular this morning we're hearing exactly what has he done to rescue his sheep. Let's begin by hearing verse 7 to verse 21. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We start here with the first of these two pictures, Jesus as the door, not the one that receives as much attention as the second picture. But this is very helpful to us in the way that he describes himself here. And what's so interesting about this is that the, the metaphor has shifted a little bit. You remember Jesus' point in verse 2, right above this. The point that we made last week was essentially that of equating Jesus to the shepherd. So he approaches the sheep legitimately by entering the door. And in that case, we said, because we've seen the distinction between two sheepfolds in that verse, and then again in verse 16, we noticed that for that particular sheepfold of the Jewish nation, the door was generally God's revelation, and perhaps more specifically, the Mosaic Covenant. But that's not where he's going now. He's shifted the metaphor a bit. Now he is the door. And I want to suggest that the metaphor he's making is changing a bit here. What he's focusing on now is the reality of the door as the safe path to blessedness. It's not so much another picture as it is another side of the same picture. The door is the path of proper entrance to the sheep. But for the sheep, the door is the path to blessedness and safety. The pastures out there. You'll go out that way when your shepherd is leading you there. And it's that emphasis that he's making now. We can say that because of what he says next. He says, I am the door of the sheep. Look down at verse 9. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. It's in that context that he then says in verse 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. D.A. Carson said this about what's said there. He says, Jesus the gate is the sole means by which the sheep may enter the safety of the fold, verse 9a, or the luxurious forage of the pasture, verse 9b. So while the thief of verse 10 is most often contrasted with the shepherd, here, the thief is contrasted with the proper door itself. There are two ways to go in 
and out. There are two ways to go out in particular here, to go forward in your life, you could say. You can go by the door the right way, or you can go by being carried over the fence by a thief. It'd be another way to go forward. And if you're going out that way, you can be sure you're going to your destruction. That's sure because of the reason that the thief has come. He has not come that you may have life. What has he come for, verse 10? The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. So you can see then, while this is technically a bit of a different picture, the door as opposed to the shepherd, they certainly belong together. This is a question of safety. It's a question of the way God has made forward for those whom he loves. This door is still speaking in reference to a shepherd. It's just emphasizing the way that the shepherd leads in instead of emphasizing the man himself. That's what's going to come next. But it's important that we see this because of its emphasis on the way that the good shepherd is going to lead. The path. And there's even some language that we find here that's relevant. The going in and coming out. The leading down the right way. This presents us with yet another Old Testament connection that I think we're meant to notice. So just to hear some of these details that we've read here, Jesus is the one, verse 3 has already told us, who will lead out the sheep. And again in verse 9 here, by him the sheep will, it says, go in and out and find pasture. The shepherd that God is going to send his people is going to succeed in leading the people, like a shepherd does his sheep, to the place of safety and blessing that God has for them. In other words, the whole significance of the right way is that it leads to the right destination. It leads to the place where there's food to be eaten, where there's pasture. That's why the way is significant. I wonder if those things would have sounded familiar at all to those who knew the books of the law in the Old Testament. Let me read something to you. You can turn here if you'd like, but it's only a few verses. We read this in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. Numbers 27, verses 15 to 18. You you can tell what's going on here. This is speaking in reference to the passing of the baton after Moses and leading God's people. And here's what we read. Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God, of all the, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. And who was it that God gave them? Verse 18, so the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit. That's N-U-N, by the way. That's his father's name. Doesn't mean he has no father. Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him. That was God's answer to that request. And this is something, I, I can't figure out why people don't talk about this more. This connection. Jesus as the true and better Joshua. It may be because the apostles wrote about and articulated certain other connections. 
like Paul calling Jesus the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15, or Hebrews 3 talking about Jesus and how he is greater than Moses, the greater Moses. So maybe sometimes we felt like we're more on solid ground when we draw those connections. But it's not more solid ground. We forget that Jesus was literally named after Joshua. As in, it's exactly the same name. Jesus' name was Joshua. Joshua's name was Jesus. It's the same name. It's just pronounced differently in two different languages. Jesus is the Greek pronunciation of the Hebrew name Joshua. You have Jesus, Jesus, or Yeshua, Joshua. They're the same name. We're just picking the Greek pronunciation when we call our Lord Jesus. It's like when we speak of Solomon. We're calling him Solomon because we're choosing the Greek pronunciation of his name. If we use the Hebrew pronunciation, we'd call him Shlomo. And that would be a bit unfortunate, I think. (laughs) But it's the same thing. If you go into the Old Testament and you read the Greek Old Testament, you read about Joshua, all you see is Jesus, 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 Jesus. It's the same name. He was literally named after Joshua. Think of the significance of this. Moses rescued the people from death. He gave them the law. He brought them out of Egypt. But what could he not do? He could not bring them into the promised land. It took Joshua to do that. And Moses' covenant brought great safety and blessing. It was mightily used by God in redemptive history. But it could not and was never intended to bring God's people finally to their rest. It was going to take a new covenant to do that. And his leading the people, Numbers 27, out and into the promised land is the picture of the work that will happen when the new Joshua or the last Joshua, our Lord Jesus Christ, comes as the shepherd of God's people and leads them home. So that, quote, the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. This is what we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, if you have Jesus, though it's true, you live your life in this world as sojourners and exiles in this world, my friends, your homecoming is as good as accomplished. There is no other development in God's plans of redemptive history past the Lord Jesus that you're waiting for. There's no other rescuer that's a next step. The one that all the others pointed to is here. He is the good shepherd. He is the way by which God will lead us out and lead us in so that we will not be as sheep without a shepherd. So that then what we're about to hear is what Jesus says about himself to this effect. What he says in verses 11 to 18 is a description of how the shepherd of God's people will lead them to salvation, verse 6, will lead them to life, verse 10. The true Joshua is the true Davidic shepherd who has come. And what we find 
here now looking, coming into verse 11, are a series of pictures, really, that portray the how. How does Jesus lead us to our new home with him? And it seems to me right to identify three descriptions of what we have here and what follows. What is the picture of the how that this shepherd will lead us? The first picture that we have is a picture of self-sacrifice. In verses 11 to 13, we read in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What's emphasized there at first is a willingness. A willingness to risk one's own safety and even one's own life for the sheep. But think about the, the actual playing out of this in any other context of a shepherd and his sheep. I mean, this is, not, this is obviously not the hoped-for outcome. Right? This is not what we would think is the norm for a shepherd to lay down his life, actually lay it down for his sheep. It wouldn't even be desirable. The death of the shepherd would reflect certainly a commitment on his part, a willingness for self-sacrifice, but it would also be a royal disaster for the flock who would then be left completely exposed and unprotected. There has to be more to the present situation than simply willingness, and of course there's going to be. But here at the beginning, Jesus emphasizes that he has not come as a display of self-interest. The thief in verse 10 had three potential desires. To steal sheep, to kill them, literally speaks of sacrifice there, to kill them for selfish personal reasons, to eat, to use, or simply, three, to destroy them. All selfish motives. That was the thief. Here, verses 12 and 13, you also have a hired hand compared, don't you? The hired hand is not the thief. They're not the same image. There's nothing so heinous as that of the thief. And when we look at the hired hand, it's simply that with the hired hand, there is not that pride of ownership. He's doing this to receive a wage. And when the wolf comes, he's not going to risk mortal danger to rescue this flock of sheep. What Jesus is telling us here is, I am not merely a hired hand. I have been sent as the servant of God. I come only to do the will of my Father. I am no hired hand. I am, in fact, the owner of the sheep. I'm their shepherd. I'm their shepherd, and I'm a good one. Now, that's very good, but even that is not strong enough. David was also a good shepherd, wasn't he? As far as it goes, David was a good shepherd. What is Jesus? Jesus is the good shepherd. It's verse 14 where he finally makes that very explicit connection with his own picture here. He's been leading up to that this entire time. In verse 14, we read him finally saying in the first person, I am the good shepherd. He said it in verse 11, he gives a description, and now he repeats it again here. So this first description that we have of the good shepherd is that of a willing self-sacrifice. He's revealing his heart in coming for the good of his sheep. 
The second picture that we see here, we see it in verses 14 to 16. It's a picture of covenant faithfulness. And that's most clearly on display in Jesus' decision to speak in terms of knowledge here, in terms of knowing us. He says in verse 14, I know my own, and my own know me. To know here speaks inherently of belonging to. This is the reality of a covenant relationship. And so much does the idea here speak of of a particular intimacy of covenant relationship, that this is the same verb used to speak of the sexual union in the marriage covenant. Adam knew his wife with the same term used here. It's the same word used in Galatians 4.9 when speaking of God's saving work on our behalf. Paul says there, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again? Now, he's not setting those apart from each other there. He's not saying that they don't know God, but rather that they are known by God. He's not correcting himself. He's saying that while both of those are true, the principal reality, the causative reality, is the second. We know him because he chose to know us. He knew us as he called us by name, brought us to himself. He'll put it in a slightly different way in 1 John. In 1 John 4.19, he'll say, we love because he first loved us. And here Jesus affirms both of these realities. He says, I know my own and my own know me. Could he go any deeper than this in conveying his covenant faithfulness to his people? Could there be any stronger language describing a status of union with our great shepherd? Well, be careful what you ask for, because verse 15, he makes a comparison to continue making the point of unity and faithfulness. He draws up a certain comparison with the very unity and intimacy found within the Godhead. Continuing into verse 15, I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. That's a difficult one for us. It's hard to know what to say positively about this comparison, because if we're thinking well, we, we, we immediately spot the limitations of that comparison. There's plenty to say in the negative. He's not equating the intimacy we share with him. He's not equating it to the unity shared between the Father and the Son. They're not of the same sort of thing. But he is making bold statements here, isn't he? As to the extent to which he is committed to his people. And the extent to which his people have been united to him. Now, the last element in this picture of covenant faithfulness, before we move on to the third uh, element of, uh, of his shepherding, is the statement of verse 16. That's pretty important to anyone in this room who is not of Jewish descent. It's the announcement we have here that his covenant people will be a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. He says in verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. 
So there will be one flock, one shepherd. His flock is a flock called out from the other flocks to constitute one flock. His flock is his covenant community. And its members will be drawn from all nations. Even as we'll read later on, the end of John 11 is going to say this, that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So what we're seeing here as we're walking through his statements is we're seeing that his shepherding is a picture of self-sacrifice, willing, joyful self-sacrifice. It's a picture of covenant faithfulness. It's also, third and finally, a picture of divine authority. You cannot miss the statements of divine authority in what our Lord says in verses 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now, this is a place to be very deliberate. Can you tell? For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Is he saying that the Father did not, would not love him unless or until he laid down his life? Is that what he's saying? For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. I trust that we are all in the process of our Christian walk, developing what we could call a smell test. And I hope that that idea right away does not pass your smell test. A smell test is a very important thing. What has been declared over and over in this gospel is the Father's approval of, love for, confirmation of Jesus as his beloved Son. It's not been unclear at all in this gospel. The point here is rather that the Father's unending love for the Son, you could say it this way, is one side of a two-sided coin that is always present and together. The other side of it is the Son's utter and complete obedience to his Father. You don't have one without the other. This This is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He ends verse 18 with, This charge I have received from my Father. Is putting a final stamp again on this statement of complete unity in purpose. We could say in verse 17, this is not a literal translation of what we have, but verse 17 is essentially saying, this is what the Father loves about me. The complete and utter obedience that culminates in my willingness even to lay down my own life. To obey Him, even incarnate, all the way to the cross. That act of our Lord laying down his life for the sheep is supremely pleasing to the Father. And it is so because it supremely demonstrates God's heart toward sinners. In John 15, 13, we'll read, Greater love has no one than this. Maybe you can finish that. That someone laid down his life for his friends. 
It is the supreme display of love. And what we have in the sons, in this obedience of the Son going to the cross to lay down his life, what we have is the supreme display of love that has ever been seen in the world and ever will be seen. Do you ever struggle with the temptation to feel as if God does not love you? You're struggling, you, you believe in the Lord Jesus as the Savior of the world and as your Savior, but what you're going through is putting questions into your mind. You're hurting. And if you're honest, you can't help but wonder, does he really love me? I don't think that is a foreign experience to any adult believer in this room. There is a definite place in those moments. There's a definite place for faith, isn't there? Faith that what God has told us is true. That he is present with us in our suffering. And that he knows what he's doing. And that he didn't lie. When he said, that he works all things for the good of those who love him. There is a need for faith in God's promises and in his word at that moment. But there's also need for remembering. Remember exactly what he chose to do for you when he sent his son to lay down his life, to pour out his blood in order to cleanse you forever. We are called on to remember what it was that we saw at the cross. It was the supreme display of God's love that the world has or will ever see. We see authority here in what happens and in how Jesus describes it. Because Jesus knows exactly what our need is. And he knows exactly how to meet it. And he walks boldly forward to do so. And it's that authoritative confidence that he emphasizes as he continues in verse 17. Look again there. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Can you see as well here uh, that this is an authority... I mean, we're talking an authority over one's own life. This is an authority that only God has. Which one of us can say here this morning in good conscience, I have authority to lay my life down. It is God who has numbered our days. God reigns supreme over life. What's more, which of us has authority to take our life up again? That one's even easier, isn't it? This is divine authority that Jesus is describing here. This charge I have received from my Father. It's just one more aspect of our redemption that highlights the unity of purpose and activity between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all that God does. Because while other places emphasize the Father's work in raising Jesus, some passages specifically mention the Father in raising His Son. Others even emphasize the role of the Spirit in raising Jesus. But here, Christ declares His authority, which puts Him in an active, deliberate place, not a passive state of victimhood. Can you see the links He's going to make plain? That He is not going to the cross 
as some passive victim. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He knows exactly what is coming to him, doesn't he? He knows exactly what he's doing. I mean, we're hearing from a man who knows the stakes. He knows that the wages of sin is death. He knows the value of his own sacrifice. He knows the value of a pure sacrifice. He knows that the Father will accept his death in our place. In fact, for that purpose, the Father sent him. And he has come willingly to do just that, to lay his own life down. Now, that brings us to a fairly significant point that we see in this picture of a good shepherd who is willing to lay down his life for his sheep. Notice simply one word, verse 11 and verse 15, the word for, for the sheep. That is a particular word used there. Everywhere in John that that preposition occurs, it speaks of sacrifice, something done on behalf of. Over and over it's used for Jesus' death. Once it's used of Peter, in John 13, 17, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. I will offer myself for you. And it's even found in what we have already read in 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, than that he lay down his life for his friend. This has been put very powerfully by one man. He wrote, the shepherd, this is so helpful. The shepherd does not die for his sheep to serve as an example. Throwing himself off a cliff in a grotesque and futile display while bellowing, see how much I love you. No, the assumption is that the sheep are in mortal danger. That in their defense, that in their defense the shepherd loses his life, and that by his death they are saved. That's what he's done. He lays down his life for the sheep. And I would say to all the believers in this room, in whatever season of life you find yourself, again, it comes to this question, does the Lord love you? What has he done? He laid down his life for you. He saved you at the cross. Hebrews 7.25 says he saved, quote, to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him. You may be in a season of pain, uncertainty, discouragement now, but my friend, you are in mortal, eternal danger. And by his death, you are rescued. There may be some here living a life even now without a shepherd. If not heard the voice of the good shepherd and sensed it as a voice to trust and to follow. And even today, what we have, what's happening right now, is that it may well be that there are some here for whom the Lord is calling them to himself. If that's you, you have never had a shepherd. You have always needed a shepherd. And you hear in the testimony of Scripture a shepherd who knows who you are. 
I mean, he knows why you're here. He knows the very purpose for your existence. He can and will lead you to eternal rest and peace. And he was willing to do it at the cost of his own life. This is what we hear in the call of a shepherd like this. Verse 19, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. And they make really a singular charge against him, some of these. This is a crazy, demon-possessed man. But their hatred of his words cannot erase the power that has already been put on display among them, can it? When the man born blind was healed. And you'll notice that those who hesitate to agree with that group, they certainly point to the miracle, don't they? Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? What we need to understand, though, is that they don't only point to the miracle. They point to his words, too. These are not the words of a man who is oppressed by a demon. What did they hear as they stood there listening to Jesus? They heard graciousness. They heard eloquence. They heard scripture dripping from the things he's pointing them to. What's hard is simply that the claim he's making is such a weighty claim. I mean, there's so much weight to this. You're telling me that I'm looking at the Davidic shepherd? I'm looking at the true Joshua, who is the one who will lead God's people home? And that's exactly what he's telling them. This is the fullness of time. It's not an uncommon experience for us, I think. It's not uncommon for me, maybe you're like this, to have something um, big, exciting going on in your life, um, something maybe happening on that particular day that you've looked forward to. You ever have this happen to you? You wake up in the morning, and for a little bit of time there, you've forgotten about it. It's not, it's not in your consciousness. You're just getting ready for the day. And then it hits you. I love that feeling. I don't know if you feel that way. I mean, it brings a smile to your face. What do we have here from God's Word? To those who know Christ Jesus savingly, I wonder if you woke up this morning and remembered that your eternal safety, your homebound journey, your eternal joy is currently actively being guarded by a shepherd who loved you and who loves you still, who has loved you to the uttermost and has saved you to the uttermost. That's what you call perspective on our life, isn't it? You may have woken up and remembered a number of other things first that did not put a smile on your face. Did you remember this? And if that thought has not yet come into your consciousness this morning, as you're thinking about the day and weighing its responsibilities, that's our prayer, is that it may now bring the relief that is proper to it. 
What we're describing are realities. He's telling them then realities that he is sure to do and certain to accomplish. We are speaking about realities that have already happened. It is finished. Our good shepherd is not just willing. He has laid down his life for his sheep. And my friends, by his wounds we are healed. Our God has caused the iniquity of his people to fall upon Jesus. And in three days he rose again, demonstrating his conquer of death and sin. And he is now seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty as I speak to you. And as Philippians 1.6 tells us, he will bring all his works to completion in the last day. I mean, he is the better Joshua. He will not just lead us to the borders. He's already accomplished the work to bring us all the way home. Praise be to this shepherd that our God has provided. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we readily acknowledge and appreciate the, uh, the ups and downs of the life that you lead us through in this life. We thank you for surrounding us with others that can weep when we weep and rejoice when we rejoice. We thank you for the ways that you use the events and choices of our life to accomplish your good purposes, even to usher in your kingdom. What rich, meaningful lives you give to us. Help us, Lord, to have wisdom as we walk them. But we also thank you this morning in particular, Lord, that you have made it such that we can walk every day of that path with the full knowledge that the way has already been paved. It requires great trial and tribulation, and you call us to that. But our Lord has already gone to death, and he has already conquered it. He's tasted what was due to us so that we will never taste it. Father, thank you. Thank you for what you've given us and your son, our good shepherd. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.